Uh, good morning, FBC family. Um, always an honor to be with you. Uh, if you're new with us this week, uh, my name is James. Um, I serve as the lead pastor of this gathering. Uh, great to have you with us today. Um, last week, we started a brand new sermon series uh, that we simply called uh, Ecclesia. Uh, ecclesia. And for those of you not familiar with that term, um, Ecclesia is a Greek word uh, commonly found in the New Testament of our Bibles that most regularly uh, translates in English to the word church, the word church. But more specifically, uh, that word, ecclesia, it means a called out assembly or a called out gathering. And and with this series, uh, my intention is pretty simple. Uh, I want to talk about the church in terms of what it is, what it does, and how it goes about doing what it's supposed to do. And I certainly uh, think that these topics are always relevant, right? We are a local church, and so we better understand what God teaches about the church. Uh, But especially uh, in 2020, when gatherings uh, all around the world are being forced to shut down, um, small groups are, are, are being put on uh, pause from being able to meet in person. Um, there are all these restrictions taking place, all these ups and downs. Um, and, and so I thought, what a great time to have a discussion uh, on the church or about the church. And so with that, last week we began this, uh, began our journey, I guess you'd say, with the goal of initially defining uh, the church. And through scripture, uh, what I hope deeply settled into your mind and into your hearts was the truth that the church is not a what, but a who. That the church is not a what, but a who. That for those who have confessed with their mouths that Jesus is Lord, for those of us who are living our lives as if that is actually true, we are the church. We are the church. The church is people. And through Acts chapter 1, specifically verse 8, we saw that. We uncovered that. We saw that the church is people who are really defined or identified as having uh, three unique characteristics. It's people who are empowered by the Holy Spirit. The church is people who are centered on the gospel. And the church is people who are sent on mission. That very literally, the church is people who are filled with the person of the Holy Spirit, God himself. Their entire lives center around the person of Jesus Christ and his gospel and his kingdom. Everything that they do is for his glory and for that kingdom. And these set-apart people, they live their lives as sent ones. They are missionaries. They live for God's plans. They live for God's purposes. The church is people. It's people. So that was last week. And if you missed that message last week, um, I really, really encourage you uh, to go back and listen to it. I promise, I don't really, you know, if you've been here, I don't say that too often to go back and listen to one of my my sermons, but that message um, was so important 
to who we want to be as a church. Um, it's really a message that, that communicates uh, the vision that we have here. And so go back and, and watch it or, or listen to it. Well, today, um, we're going to attempt to answer a different question. Last week, the question was, who is the church? I think we did a pretty good job at defining that. Today, we're asking the question, what do we do? What do we do? We know who we are as Acts 1 people. We've said it, right? It's there. Empowered, we're centered, we're sent. That's who we are. That characterizes us. But now, what do we do? Or maybe we could say, what is the response or what actions follow a person who belongs to the ecclesia? What actions follow a person who belong to the church? Well, we don't have to turn very far from Acts chapter 1 to find our answer. And so if you have a Bible with you today, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And in Acts 2, essentially what we are seeing there is a fulfillment of Acts chapter 1. Because remember, in in Acts 1, Jesus is telling uh, his followers, his disciples, a future reality. He's communicating to them a future reality, what's going to happen. He says, this is who you're going to be once the Spirit comes. He hasn't come yet, but once the Holy Spirit comes, this is who you're going to be. And so then we turn over to Acts chapter 2, and we see that the Holy Spirit comes just as Jesus says. Now, Uh, Just for a little bit of background, context for this chapter. We know that the events here in Acts chapter 2 happen on the day of Pentecost. Okay, the day of Pentecost. And and Pentecost uh, is a Jewish holiday uh, held 50 days after Passover. Happens every year. 50 days after Passover, we have Pentecost. And it was also known as the Feast of Harvest, or it still is, known as the Feast of Harvest, or the Day of First Fruits. And the purpose of this feast was to celebrate the completion of the grain harvest. Um, Maybe an easy way to think of this is, it's sort of like American Thanksgiving, or even better, maybe like Chuseok here in Korea. Similar kind of thing. And it's on this day that we learn... Uh, that the Holy Spirit literally comes down for the very first time to dwell on all followers of Jesus, everybody who has confessed that he's Lord. He comes to indwell believers. The Spirit comes just as Jesus said that he would, to indwell and to fill those who have professed Jesus as Lord. Uh, It's such a powerful scene here in Acts chapter 2. You can read about it. I encourage you to do it. There's a sound of a rushing wind when the Spirit comes. There's an appearance of of fire. Um, We learn that the people around, they're just astonished and amazed. They they can't believe or comprehend what's happening. And of course, it shouldn't surprise us uh, if we've read Acts 1. But now, we see that the disciples, they are filled with the Holy Spirit totally. They're indwelt, saturated with the Spirit of God himself. And then we have Peter, 
standing there with the other disciples. And what does he do? He begins to preach the gospel to the crowd of people who have arrived on the scene trying to figure out what in the world is going on. And why? Why does he preach the gospel? That, why is that his immediate response? Well, because people who are filled with the Holy Spirit live their lives on mission. That's what spirit-filled people do. You can never separate the two. People who are indwelt with the Spirit speak the gospel and live the gospel. That's who the church is. That's who we are as the church. Well, you can read Peter's sermon starting in verse 14. Really powerful sermon. But the crux or the bottom line of that message really comes in verse 36. Where Peter says this. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus, whom you've crucified, both Lord and Messiah. That verse there, what Peter says, those short words there, that's really the simplified gospel right there, that Jesus is Lord That there is a kingdom and he is the king. Jesus is the king of that kingdom. And at the same time, Jesus is not just Lord, but he's also the Messiah. He is the savior of the world. That through him, through his death and resurrection, we are actually offered eternal life both now and forever with him. Well, praise God. At that message... On that day that the Spirit came and Peter spoke, those who were listening, it says, those who were listening were deeply cut to the heart. They were convicted of their sin and who they were and who Jesus was. They missed it, actually. And now they realize who Jesus is. And with that conviction and this this obvious desire to change, The crowd asks a really simple, I think it's a really great question. It's verse 37. They ask him, Peter, or all the disciples, okay, brothers, we've heard the gospel. Now, what shall we do? We've heard the gospel. We believe. We want that. Now, what should we do? And look at Peter's response. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, For the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them. Preaching to them. Teaching them. Saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So Peter tells them, okay, what's the response after you've heard the gospel and you want this, you want to live like Jesus, you, want, you, you believe that Jesus is Lord, you realize that, you believe he's the Messiah, the Savior, what's the response? He says, first, repent. In other words, turn from yourself and turn to Christ. 
Change your mind is literally what the word repent means. Have a change of mind. You once believed you or someone or something else was God or on the throne of your life, and Jesus was just a man or whatever, uh, another idol or whatever you think. Change your mind about that and acknowledge him as Lord and Savior. Repent. Repent. Believe in Jesus. And then he says, get baptized. That's a right response to the gospel. Be baptized. He says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. In other words, Peter's saying, stop identifying with the world. Stop living like the world. And in turn, start living like Jesus. See, when you and I, when we believe the gospel, the message here is that you are called out of this world. That's why that word ecclesia, this gathering, they're set apart. They're out of the world. And again, it means that you will, if you are part of this gathering, if you're part of the ecclesia, the church, it means that you will stop living for yourself and living for what you can, can get out of this life, and you will start living for Christ. The response to the gospel, the proper response, is repentance. It's baptism, and then it's a living a life for Christ. As the church, we live differently. We live in a way that points people to Jesus and his kingdom. And so what does that life actually look like? What does it look like to do that? Well, after the gospel is received, after the people, seemingly this 3,000 whatever plus people are baptized, they're full of the Holy Spirit, the end of Acts 2 tells us what they did, what their lives looked like. It tells us how they were living. And so that's going to be our focus for the rest of our time together. What did these people do as the ecclesia, as the church? Nathan read it for us this morning. It's Acts chapter 2, verse 42. I want to read it for you as well, uh, since it is our main text today. And let's just try to pay really careful attention to what God is saying to us today. This is what it says again, starting in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Well, from this text here, these few verses, I want to show you this morning four marks of the church. Four marks of the church, or if you're taking notes, we'll say it this way. As the church, what do we do? And I want to show you four points. As the church, what do we do? If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Number one, number one, what do we do? We devote ourselves to learning. Number one. We devote ourselves to learning. I'll have to expand on all these points, but trying to keep it short. We devote ourselves to learning. In verse 42, 
and you can see it there on the screen, we, we read that these people who were just indwelt with the Holy Spirit, that they devoted themselves, it says, to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And, and what does it mean to be devoted? Devoted. That is a key. I think it's almost the central word in this text. You might want to underline it, highlight it, circle it, make a side note on the margin of your Bible, okay, if you're one of those people. Hey, the word devoted. What does it mean to be devoted? Well, ultimately, at least through Scripture, and I think it even translates to our world, it means to sacrifice or make an unwavering commitment to something. To be devoted means to sacrifice or to make an unwavering commitment to something. It means to fully invest or dedicate yourself towards or to a specific purpose. That's what it means to be devoted. Perhaps a, an illustration or an example would be really helpful to us. When I think of the word uh, devoted, I think of, of, of sports. I think it's because I love sports, uh, all sorts of sports. It doesn't matter what's, what sport is on TV um, or whatever. I can pull up on my iPad. I will watch it. It literally doesn't matter. During the Olympics, I'll watch like the people like brushing the ice with the, the curling thing, throwing like the bocce ball stuff, like people with, it doesn't matter. If you have an arrow, a hammer, a gun, if you're just running, I will watch it. I love sports. I just love competition. Um, and so, yeah, this season of COVID has been hard, not just for gathering, but I'm so thankful sports are back on. All right. Um, it's been really helpful uh, for, my, for my mind. All right. But when I think about uh, sports, uh, I think of the word devoted. And specifically, I think of one person. Um, I think of a person uh, like Michael Phelps. Uh, Michael Phelps. Uh, Michael Phelps, uh, for those of you, I'm sure all of us know who he is here in the room. Um, the gold medalist swimmer. Broke a ton of records. Um, I think of, of Michael Phelps and how he prepared himself uh, for the Olympics. Sp- specifically, I believe it was like 2016 um, in Rio de Janeiro. Okay, um, About 2014-15, he started going into training mode. Serious training mode for that Olympics, which is going to be his last one. Um, and he actually uh, reported, his trainer uh, reported meticulously what he did and what he was doing on a daily basis to sort of just show his dedication, but also to show people uh, in this documentary what it takes to be an Olympic athlete, not just an Olympic athlete, to be the best in the world. Um, so listen to this. Right? I'm going to read through this list. This is what Michael Phelps' life looked like as he was training for the Olympics. Six days a week were spent in the pool. That makes sense. Six days a week, three workouts per day, going an average of 13 kilometers or eight miles a day in the pool, six days a week. Three days of the week, he was working out outside of the pool. Every, those three days, 500 sit-ups, 500 push-ups, 500 pull-ups, running and static stretching, at least 30 minutes to an hour of yoga every day. 
Each day, listen to this, this is crazy. He ate around 12,000 calories of food. By the way, some of you are like, well, what does that mean? I probably eat like 10,000. No, you don't, okay? The average male, to, to make it, every day you need about 1,800 calories. Females, 1,500 calories per day to, to maintain yourself. Michael Phelps, 12,000 calories of food. For breakfast, this is a normal breakfast for him. Three fried egg sandwiches, a five-egg omelet, a bowl of oatmeal, three slices of French toast, three chocolate chip pancakes, two cups of coffee. Workout, lunch, one pound or 0.5 kilograms of pasta, two ham and cheese sandwiches, and 1,000 calories worth of Powerade or Gatorade. For dinner, another pound or 0.5 kilograms of pasta, one whole pizza, and another 1,000 calories of Gatorade. He was also, and this is kind of funny, but he was also deeply committed to sleep for his recovery. At a minimum, he was sleeping 10 hours a day. That's a minimum. That's just a starting point, 10 hours a day of sleep. And so what becomes obvious when we examine a person like Michael Phelps is that his whole life was sacrificed or given over to one single purpose, One purpose, win gold medals. That's it. I wake up in the morning with one goal. I'm going to win gold medals. I go to bed, take my naps for a purpose. I am sleeping this nap for one purpose. I'm going to win a bunch of gold medals. Be the best swimmer, not just in the world, the best swimmer there's ever been. He totally devoted himself to the sport of swimming. Whatever it takes. He would do it. And what we read here, now try to follow the bridge. (laughs) What we read here in Acts 2 is that the church was devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were hungry, thirsty to receive instruction and to know God's word because they knew that it ultimately pointed them to the person of God himself. It led them to know Jesus. And so they were devoted to the word. But more than that, understand that this word devoted here in scripture, it's also an action that's very important to this word, to this text. It's an action. You cannot miss this point. Otherwise, you'll miss the whole entirety of the text. See, these people In the early church, they were not just sitting around listening to sermons all day or even memorizing what God had said through his word. Of course they were listening. Sure. Of course they were memorizing scripture. But then they actually went out and lived like Jesus. That's what it means to be devoted. In other words, they took their knowledge, they took that information that they were consuming or absorbing, and then they were fully dedicated to actually going out and doing what the Word of God said. You know, I wonder today, uh, for those of us, you know, 2020, I guess I'll say this 21st century church as a whole, I wonder how much you and I are, are, are deeply, we could use the word devoted when it comes to our desire to master the Word of God. 
How eager are we to study God's word and to deeply grow in our knowledge of him? But beyond that, I wonder how much we have dedicated or devoted our lives to actually living the way that God has said. You know, when I, when I first read what Michael Phelps was doing, uh, the way that he was training, all I could think when I first was reading about it was like, that's just totally insane. Like, it's like almost like, um, like a mental, like you'd almost say that he has like some men, something mentally off. Like to, to do that every single day, it's insane. Like it's crazy when you really think about living your life that way to win gold medals. Right? He was totally surrendered. We could all agree, I think, right? Totally surrendered to swimming. It's his entire life. But then when I thought about it more, I thought, is that how people see me and my devotion, my commitment to Jesus? Like, is it evident Is it evident to people that my life is totally surrendered to knowing God and obeying his word? Because it should be. And yours should be as well. Our devotion to the word of God and living out God's word should be on display It should be evident. And if not, the question for you and I is, what are we devoted to? What are our priorities? What are we fully invested in? As the church, we are called, required actually, to rearrange our lives. Totally reorient our lives to make Jesus the center and purpose of our lives. And what I found, um, at least personally, is that when I truly understand who Jesus is and what he has done for me, how passionate Jesus is for me, when I truly comprehend, even a little bit, when when I comprehend the truths of the gospel, I am so compelled, so eager, so excited actually to devote myself to knowing him, to get to know him. And so as the church, what do we do? Well, we devote ourselves to learning. We devote ourselves to learning, meaning we know the word, but also we live the word. We know the word and we live the word. Well, back to verse 42. We also see that the church was committed to fellowship. They were committed to fellowship. Let's read that again. Again, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and here it is, and to fellowship. And that really leads us to our second point today, which is we devote ourselves to loving. We devote ourselves to loving. As the church, we devote ourselves to loving. 
The word fellowship here, it comes from uh, the Greek word koinonia. Koinonia, uh, very profound word, uh, very deep, very rich, ton of meaning here, lots of impact. Koinonia. Koinonia, it means a, a commitment to sharing something in common with someone else. A commitment to sharing something in common with someone else. And so what we see here in Acts 2 is that these believers in Christ, what they were doing regularly, we're going to see that, was coming together in love, coming together in faith, coming together in encouragement. And so what that means, and, I, and it's sad that I even have to point this out to the church, but what this means is that fellowship here goes Far beyond, far beyond just some simple chit-chat before and after a worship service. That's not fellowship. It means being intentional, rather. Being intentional about being in each other's lives. That's koinonia. It's intentionality. It's purposeful. And why? Why do we fellowship with one another? Well, primarily because we have a common fellowship with God. Because we all, those of us who belong to the church, we all share this same identity. Right? That's why it can actually be written. It's a great verse, verse 44. I don't have it on the screen, but you can look in your Bible. It says that these people who are gathering together... Notice it says they have everything in common. They have everything in common. And don't misunderstand that verse. It's not that these people all looked the same. It's not that they were all from the same backgrounds. It's not even that they all primarily spoke the same language. It's that they shared the same spirit within them. They shared the same relationship with the creator of all things. And they all had the same purpose, vision, and mission for their lives. And so that fellowship with God, that relationship with God that was given to them because of Jesus Christ, because of the gospel, it led naturally to fellowship with one another. Look at what the Apostle John and the Apostle Paul said about this fellowship, this koinonia. 1 John 1.3, it says this, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have, here it is, fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And then 2 Corinthians 3.14, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You see, those of us that are followers of Jesus, we have fellowship with God. We are loved by God. We identify with Jesus. And as we said last week, we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And that reality is at the heart of our fellowship with one another. 
Our unity with God, in other words, brings us unity with one another. And what comes with that unity is a people who continually share with one another. They continually share. I love this. What did they share? What did they share? Well, first we see that, first I think we see that they shared their lives and their time. Their lives and their time. I think we see this in verse 46. It says this, that every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts and that they broke bread in their homes. That's what it says. Every day. In other words, they willingly gave up their own time to be together. I understand we live in a very different world, a very different day, a very different culture, where perhaps meeting together every single day isn't a reality, isn't practical. But at the same time, I do think as a church family, as the church as a whole, we need to do much, much better with this. Than, uh, than we're doing. Much, much better. Right? That we actually need to figure out what this looks like in our culture. We need to actually fight against the crazy busyness of a city like Seoul and look deeply within ourselves about how we are spending our time. And we need to prioritize our time And learn to prioritize and value one another. They gave their time to one another. To be together. And then second, we see that they also shared their resources. They shared their resources. Verse 45 has always been a a bit of a a challenge to me. uh, A little bit of a shock to me as well. It says this, uh, that they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. That's what they were doing. They got together, they're meeting in homes, and anybody who had a need, they're just selling what they had to meet those needs. That's how they were living their lives. Now, um, maybe perhaps because it's getting a little bit more appropriate in our day, um, it's kind of making news and things like that, I want to be really clear. What this is not saying here in Acts 2, this is not an early form of communism. Okay? Nor is this what we would consider a modern-day socialism. I don't think so. Right? There is no government or law here that ordered these people to give at all or to this extent. They had to pay taxes, but not selling everything that they had for the purpose of common people. Right? They were not mandated, in other words, to do this. They were not being forced to do this. Which I think means, means it's even more radical. Because what this means is that this giving, this generosity that we see here in the early church, it was voluntary. And because of that, that's revolutionary. What we see here is a willing, sacrificial, joyful Spirit-filled, generous giving of possessions to meet people's needs. It's absolutely incredible. 
that apparently the early church, these first believers who are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, who've decided to center their lives in the gospel, to believe that Jesus is Lord and Messiah, they saw God in such a way that it was a joy for them to give. And it's easy to understand how this is possible when we see God correctly, isn't it? Right? Those of us who, who give regularly, especially, like we understand this. We understand that the gospel, that God has given us everything that we need in the person of Jesus Christ. And out of that understanding always flows a heart of generosity. I promise you, show me a person who understands the gospel. I will show you a person who is generous with everything that they have. They go together. It's seamless. And this has been God's purpose from the very, very beginning. We're seeing some fulfillment here. Because from the very, very beginning, we know that the reason that we are blessed as God's people, the reason we are blessed with resources as his children is so that we can in turn be a blessing to the world. The Acts 2 church, the Acts 2 believers, they understood that, that they were not blessed with resources to hoard them for themselves. They were blessed to be a blessing. They got it. But do we? But do we, as the church, we are devoted to loving others. We are devoted to loving one another, to the fellowship, to intentionally being with one another, and to sharing everything that God has graciously given to us. And then third, from this text, I believe that we see that as the church, we devote ourselves to, and I'll use the word worship, we devote ourselves to worship. We're back in verse 42, one more time, last time. It says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, and here we go, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, those terms, uh, the breaking of bread and prayer here, they are referring specifically to uh, the Lord's Supper, communion, and to prayer in the context of corporate gatherings of worship. That's the context here. We know that they uh, continually, it says this, continually met both formally in the temple and informally in their homes from verse 46. They were doing both. And so they had set times of worship in the temple, right? Similarly to what we are doing here today. Sunday, 11 a.m., right? We have a set, planned time of worship together. They were doing that too. And at the same time, they also gathered throughout the day, right? During the days of the week, in each other's homes. And it says there in our text that as they did this, they were filled with joy, they were glad, and they did what? They worshipped God with sincere hearts. 
And so this is a large reason for why we dedicate ourselves, we devote ourselves to gathering together. It's one of the primary reasons why we come together. We come together to praise the Lord, to praise God, to remember him through things like the Lord's table, to come together to sing of his grace, to sing of his love, to thank him for his mercy. And we gather together corporately to pray to pray with all that we are, with all that we have, knowing that we are fully dependent on the Lord for every single thing that we need. It's why we gather together to worship. You know, one of the reasons um, I am so deeply grieved that we cannot all be together in this season here in this place, worshiping together, all together in a common voice, taking the Lord's Supper together, praying corporately together. One of the reasons I'm so grieved is because Scripture says that when we come together, when we do this together, that you will be full of joy. And that being together, worshiping God together, will make you glad. And I want to, I want to see your joy. It's been too long. We are made, as the church, we are made to gather together. We are designed, the bride of Christ is designed to come together to praise him to baptize people, to take communion, to remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus together, to, to huddle around each other, to put your arm around another person and to pray for them, to lay hands on people believing that God can do anything. We're made, designed to do this. It's what the church does. And when we do that, we will be filled with joy. For followers of Jesus, it is a blessing, a great blessing to praise God corporately together, to corporately worship his name and his name alone. And of course, right, the context here lends itself, it says first, with meeting in the temple. In other words, for our context, we're talking about the Sunday gathering. It's being together. We should be together in the context of a Sunday gathering like this, all in the same place, worshiping together. But at the same time, our worship, let's not miss this, our worship should be, needs to be extended beyond the Sunday gathering as well. It's both and, not one or the other. It's both and. Our worship should also, in other words, extend into our homes. And that's why we are always going to be a place, always going to be a church that places a heavy emphasis on people meeting together beyond the Sunday gathering. Particularly in this season, when we can't all be here together, we need to make it a priority to find strategic ways to be together for the purpose of worship. 
Yes, we need to be together because we need each other. I need encouragement in my life. I need you to encourage me. I need you to challenge me. I need community. We're designed for that. But the primary purpose that we, we must gather together, we have to gather together. It's not optional. Primarily is to give God glory and to praise him, to worship him. And so we have to make it a priority to do this because you and I were not designed to worship alone. Some of you need to hear that again, right? Five months is a long time. It's easy to isolate yourself, stay in your home, especially now we've moved back to 11 o'clock, wake up, sit in your pajamas, right? Eat your bowl of cereal while you're worshiping God by yourself in the comfort of your home. You were not designed to do that. God has not created the church for you to do that. And I get the circumstances with COVID and Corona and all that. And we need to do our best to be aware. But just know, you better find ways, even if it's electronically, you better find ways to be in community in this season for the purpose of worshiping God. It's what the church does. It's what we do. As the church, we are people who are devoted to worship. Praising God with every single aspect of our lives. Remembering the works of Jesus and his promises. And we share in that together. We sing. We pray. We eat together as a form of worship. This is what people who are empowered, filled with the Holy Spirit, this is what they do. And then finally, what do we do? As the church, as the church, what do we do? Number four, we devote ourselves to the mission. We devote ourselves to the mission. In verse 47, we see this about these people who repented, who were baptized, and who believed the gospel, who turned to Jesus as Lord and Savior. It says that they had favor with all the people And the Lord added to them those who were being saved. Now, I want us to notice a few things about this verse. Just a few things. First, we see that, this is really important. First, we see that it is the Lord that builds his church. It's the Lord who adds to the church. In other words, there is nothing, there is nothing that the early believers did or that you and I can do to save people. I want to say that before we start talking about living on mission. There's nothing we can do to save people. That's the Lord's job. That's his job, his responsibility. He adds to our number. However, we also know that God chooses to use people to accomplish his mission and his purposes. So while it's not our job to convert people, it is our job to be faithful in sharing the gospel message with others. That's our responsibility, to be faithful in that work. And then second, I want us to see here that this movement here was, and I'll use the term, I'll put quotes around it, this, this movement here was church-centric. It was church-centric. What do I mean by that? Well, by that I, I mean that when people accepted the gospel, okay, when they believed, when they believed in Jesus, 
they were added to the ecclesia. They were added to the church. In other words, they were counted as being a part of the church. And so this shows us again that our faith is not a private faith, but it is a dependent faith. Ultimately, of course, we are dependent first and foremost on God, but also we are dependent on one another. We learn from one another. We disciple one another. We encourage one another. We sharpen one another. We gather together first and foremost because of our need for God, but also because we know that we need each other. You know, one of the amazing, amazing things to me about this group of people here is that, notice this, they accomplished all of this without a program. There's no program. There are no church ministries yet. Okay? You can think a few hundred years later, we can think Constantine and the institutionalized church for some of that. Organized church stuff. This is organic here in Acts 2. Each and every day, we read that these individuals, what are they doing? They're just sharing the gospel and just sharing their lives with one another. That's all they're doing, sharing their lives with one another, going out, sharing the gospel. And they're doing the same with those who don't know Jesus, sharing meals as the church, going out, sharing meals with other people, sharing the gospel, just how they live their lives. You have a need, here's the need physically, here's your food, here's your shelter, here's the water, and here's your greatest need, Jesus Christ. Just how they live their lives. You in the church, you lost a job. Oh, your, your, your husband died. Okay, here you go. Here's food, everything that you need. My other house, my other property there in Rome, whatever like that, selling it. Here's all the money. Here it is. Take whatever you need. That's how they were living their lives. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. They gathered together to simplify this. They gathered together. This is what they were doing. They gathered together to praise God as people who knew that they had been set apart. And then they went out to proclaim the gospel as people who knew that they were sent out. Understand that? These people gathered together to praise God as people who understood their identity, that we are set apart, therefore we gather together. But then they went out together to proclaim the gospel as people who knew who they were, that they were also at the same time set apart, they were also sent out. Acts 1 told us who we are. We are the church. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit. We are people who are centered on the gospel, the person of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And we are sent ones. We are all missionaries. It's who we are as the church. And now we learn what these people did in Acts 2. We have a model, in other words, of what we need to be doing as the church. And so here at at Freedom Village, I want us to be known as a people 
as a church in this city, in the city of Seoul, who are devoted to learning, people who love the word of God, people who are thirsty for for Christ-centered teaching, people who, who know Jesus deeply, but who also live like Jesus. I want us to be a people, I want us to be known in our city. I want it to be evident to our city that we are people who are devoted to, to loving others, that we are intentional, intentional, strategic about the way that we fellowship with one another, that we are sacrificial towards one another, that we are generous with what we have because of, of the knowledge of how generous God has been to us. I want us to be a people who are devoted to worship. To be a people who actually love to praise God with every aspect of our lives. That we would be committed to dependent prayer. And that Jesus would be in the center of every single thing that we do. And I want this local church, I want Freedom Village to be a people a gathering of people who live on mission. That, again, we don't just talk about making disciples. We don't just talk about and theorize the Great Commission. But we actually go out and make disciples. My hopes, actually, I hope that as a gathering, we see radical multiplication here. Individually, that we would multiply ourselves in our small group structures, and which we'll talk about in a couple weeks, that those would have a vision to multiply themselves as well. And then even as a, as a whole collective gathering, I want to see this gathering multiply and see new churches birthed, new churches formed for the sake of the gospel. You know, and what's so encouraging, I think, about all of those things is that none of what I just said, none of what I just said is just some lofty dream. None of it. It's actually all a very possible reality. And I know that because it's, it's already been done before. We have an example. We just read about it in Acts 2. This is what they were doing. You and I, if you believe in Jesus here today, if you're walking with Jesus today, you and I, we already have God's help. We have it to the full extent. You're not lacking anything. You have everything. God has given you, he's given me, the Holy Spirit to do the things that the church is supposed to do. Our part, then, is to just fully devote ourselves to him and what he has asked us to do. That's our responsibility. He's given us the Spirit. The Spirit of God wants to fill you daily for this task, for this mission. He's he's not left you alone.
Your responsibility is to just be a devoted person. Give everything to this. Let the outside world look at your life and be like, that person's crazy. What's wrong with him? What's wrong with her? Why do they live like that? Let that be true of you. We are the church. So let's do the things that the church is called to do. Learning, loving, worship, and the mission. Would you pray with me?